0: On today's episode of Wrestling Changed My Life.
1: when You're on that mat. When it's you against the other person, I think you have to really, you have to own up and take responsibilities for your wins and your losses.
0: We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability.
1: I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than The things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness.
0: Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life
1: and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it allowed me to focus and channel my energy
0: we're fortunate if you wrestled, because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems.
1: You know, if I look back at my time, I good wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness.
0: What's going on, friends? You're listening to Wrestling Changed My Life. This is your host, Ryan Warner. Thank you for tuning in. You picked a good one because my guest today is Bruce Baumgartner, one of the most decorated wrestlers of all time of any country. And here's why. 13-time world medalist. He was a five-time world champ, three world champs, and two Olympic gold medals. And not only that, he got silver four times. So we're talking nine times. This guy was in the world finals. And then to top it off, he wrestled in four Olympics and went 17 years without losing to an American. Woo! Bruce, you are the man, sir. And it was an honor to talk to you. We chatted about his friendship with Dave Schultz, some unlikely encounters with the great Larry Bird, and then dive into his rivalry with the Soviet Union's David Gobeshavili. They wrestled 16 times and had some absolute battles. So we talk about that. Fan of the week goes to Jack LaCroix, one of our younger listeners, eight-year-old fan up in Bagley, Minnesota. He's a diehard Gopher fan. And from what I hear, Jack listens to the podcast before he tucks it in for bed every night. So it means I need to clean up my language a little bit. Sorry about that, Jack. Sometimes I let a few curse words slip out just because I'm getting so excited. I'm told Jack's favorite wrestler is Mitch McKee. So, Mitch, if you're listening, we've got to get you on the show for our good friend, Jack. And, folks, if you see him out there wrestling this winter up in the Minnesota circuit, give him the old wrestling changed my life salute. Jack, thank you for listening, my friend. It means a lot, and we'll do everything we can to get Mitch McKee on for you. Last but not least, as you know, I've been talking about it for months. The Dan Gable documentary is finally coming out on Monday, November 18th. It's a podcast documentary that I produced and directed. Because I'm blue in the face from talking about it, I just want to give you a little tidbit, a little teaser. So here's the opening sequence from the documentary. Wrestling for Dan Gable, he was the best.
1: Here's Dan Gable, the Iowa coach.
0: And he took care of us in a way that made us accountable and made us fight and more importantly made us want to fight for him. And look at that Iowa man, there's Dan Gable. I was born
1: to be a coach, you know.
0: Iowa has already clinched the team championship, they had done so.
1: There's only one Dan Gable. I maintain Dan Gable is the greatest motivator in the history of college sports.
0: You can see Dan Gable and crew are very excited
1: really. Very intense, but he's got to be happy with the way the Hawks have done. And so all these guys that won for me, wow. I, I, I It's like, it overwhelmed me Bulkers for satisfaction. Here. For the University of Iowa, it was a tremendous day. They wrapped up the team title, the NCAA wrestling championships before the finals began.
0: As you can tell, very exciting. I'm excited, at least. I hope you are as well. Now, let's not delay this any further. Let's get to the interview with Bruce. Give it up for Bruce Bumgartner. All right. We're here at Bruce Bumgartner. Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Ryan, it's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to have you, sir. One of the great all-time wrestlers of any country. I, I thought we'd start, though, Bruce, with one of the things I found really interesting is in the '96 Olympics, you were the essentially the team captain for all uh, all Team USA. How many people were watching you when you walked in the arena in Atlanta '96, carrying the U.S. flag?
1: Well, Ryan, I don't, I don't know exactly how many people w- were were watching. I can tell you, what felt like the entire world. Um, you know, that was just such a great honor being elected. Uh, captain of the u s wrestling team, and then on top of that uh you know all the captains of the the different teams in different sports you know voted me to carry the flag and you know that that was sort of the uh, symbolic captain of the entire u s olympic uh, team and then teresa edwards uh you know she was um, you know, kind of did the athlete's oath, which was was kind of the uh, women's basketball player that was, uh, you know, I don't know if it would be called co-captain or, or, or uh, you know, one of the captains also. But uh, coming over the ramp down in, in the Olympic Stadium in, in Atlanta was just, you know, there were. Close to, I think, 100,000 people watching between 80 and 100,000 people were there. You couldn't even hear yourself speak. I mean, I was trying to yell to the person next to me and you you couldn't even hear it. And I will tell you this, I was really, really nervous. You know with all those people watching and, and somebody said at the time and I, I don't know if that changed at all or not but at the time that was one of the most highly watched Olympic broadcasts ever the opening ceremonies in, in land and I, I don't know what, if that's true or not but you know I don't know how many people watched it on on television
0: I think you said or I heard someone in interviews Maybe a billion? I don't know if that's exaggerating. Yeah, but- I mean,
1: I, the, the rumor, you know, and again, I it, you don't have any statistics on this, but somebody said on that opening ceremonies, they were estimating somewhere a billion people watched it or over <laughs> a billion people watched it. So, and again, I don't know, you know, how do you go? I didn't count household to household. I'd still be counting, but, um, yeah. you know, that's, that's what people said. And I, I'm not sure how many people were in the stadium, but I know one thing, there wasn't one empty seat
0: wow i mean and the fact that it was in the united states has had to make it even that much more special did you have any family in the in the arena that night or were they all watching from home no
1: i had my, my um i forget if my mom and dad were there i know my wife was there for sure linda was there and um it it was just a you know an unbelievable uh you know time it, it, and Sitting back, we actually sat in another stadium, and you know the the home team goes in last, so we were there. And and people say, "Oh, the opening ceremonies was so cool on T." You know, you know, watching it, and you know, it was great pageantry. And you know, we basically watched it on a big screen on another stadium, you know, across the way, because we the the home team goes in last, so we missed a lot of the pageantry or most of the pageantry um in, in speeches live i mean we were just we walked in and you know probably 15 20 minutes a half an hour later it was over but uh it, it was just an awesome um uh, honor and, and just you know representing our country and and you know uh you know the f- symbol of our great country the flag is it was just unbelievable
0: unreal yeah it's what a cool thing for wrestling and for you personally obviously and you know, if we go way back, back to back to New Jersey in your early years, I read somewhere that you were like six and six as a freshman. How did you, uh, how did you turn that that outstanding freshman season around to be one of the the greatest wrestlers ever? Maybe just start with you know, how you got involved but, with it. And- I actually,
1: I I I believe I was three and three as a freshman, but it might have been six and <laughs> six. I know I. Um, I, I just, you know, I didn't start till my freshman year in high school, and and uh, you know, I followed my brother's footsteps, and and he was a pretty good varsity wrestler my freshman year, and um, you know, it, it was um, a learning experience. I you know, I was a hundred and almost eighty pounds in eighth grade, so um, you, you know, I was a pretty big kid for a freshman in, in a you know wrestling you know, a lot of juniors and seniors, you know, I was pretty good JV, but the varsity, I didn't fare very well at all my freshman year. Um, you know, so turning that around, it just took time and effort. Uh, you know, I didn't make it the New Jersey had a kind of a strange system for, for uh, making it to state. I, I think at that time, uh, it was district regionals, and then you went to like almost a super regional, and then the state. Well, I didn't make it to the state my, until my senior year.
0: No kidding! Wow. So, what about wrestling pulled you in then? Because if you were, you know, of that size, obviously you could have played football. I know you did some shot put, but it seems like wrestling pulled you in. What was it about it?
1: Well, you know, I think that uh, I don't know. I, I just liked it. My my brother would. Um, you know, be teaching me this stuff even in, in, you know, seventh and eighth grade when he went out for the team and I'd go watch him wrestle. And it was just something I seemed to take a liking to and enjoyed. And, um, you know, and then, uh, then I, um, you know, as I, as I got older, I, I got a little better. I mean, my senior year, I was in, in high school, I was third in the state, uh, by no means what I would say a great, um you know, high school career, but pretty good high school career. Um, mm-hmm. And I just, it was just something that's a, intangible, um, you know, because I, I, I. A lot of people say, oh, you were good your whole life. That's why you like it. Well, I really wasn't good my whole life. So I, I, I liked it and, and fell in love with the sport before I was actually good at it.
0: That's a common theme of people I talk to on here. Uh, the most recent that comes to mind was literally last week. Karen McCoy said the same thing, fell in love with it way before he was good at it. Um, so how did you end up from New Jersey all the way to Indiana state?
1: Well, you know, I, I was I was recruited by a decent number of schools, not not a ton. Uh, the, the ones that stood out was, I think it was either Florida or Florida State. I forget one down there, and they, they have obviously since dropped. Uh, Penn State, Syracuse, um, and then in, Indiana State, I think uh, Trenton State. They were my visits Um I wanted to be an industrial arts teacher. You know, my dad was a bus mechanic and I wanted to work with my hands and, you know, teach, uh, you know, wood shop, mechanical drawing, metal shop, uh, auto shop, stuff like that in high school. And, you know, kind of glad I didn't go into that profession because a lot of high schools now don't even offer, you know, most of those, those type of things. But, uh, you know, so, so it came really down to, uh, Trenton state, Penn state and Indiana state and Indiana state had the best, um, financial offer and the best, uh, Industrial arts education, industrial technology is what they called it, technology education program out of the three. Penn State's program wasn't that great uh, academically. It was really Trenton State and Indiana State had the two better, you know, academic programs for me. So I decided to go to to Indiana State.
0: Isn't it funny how back in those days, you couldn't imagine that industrial arts would be discontinued from high schools, but sure enough, it's not even a a big program anymore. Like you said,
1: no, but you know, but it's, it's morphed over the years, you know, it's become more computerized and technical. And, you know, I would, I would, I would almost argue that, that a lot of those programs have morphed into, uh, you know, robotics and stuff like that, you know? So there's, um, there's still some of that, you know, that type of education going on, but, you know, not like when, when we were growing up or I was growing up, you know, every high school was offering, you know, uh, woods or construction carpentry course. They were offering some type of metals course, some type of drawing type of course, mechanical drawing technology or something. So, but you know, now everything's technology related and computer related,
0: right? right yeah that's that's true. I guess it probably did just morph into that, and then you know I gotta ask, was the great Larry Bird at Indiana State at the same time you were there?
1: Larry Bird was a senior when I was a freshman <laughs> uh, and, and yes, we were there together uh he he was a I will say an unbelievably hard worker i mean he would he would be in the arena um I would usually lift weights in the morning, you know, 6.30, maybe to 8, and then he would uh, shoot baskets, you know. He was usually there every morning when I was leaving, 8 o'clock or so, shooting baskets, and from what I understand, he shot baskets, you know, on his own or with a person for, you know, almost an hour or two, uh, you know, just shooting baskets. So he he definitely worked at his craft, and, and yes, we were there at the same time uh, for a year.
0: Did you ever interact with them at all, or just through those morning workouts? Oh yeah, you know, I
1: mean we had the, we had the 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 you know pleasantries and stuff said hi, but we, you know we were not by any means uh, close friends. I mean we we uh, you know there was a mutual respect. We we shared some of the same locker room areas over you know the the year, but they they over you know when they were in season, they competed in the Holman Civic Center, which was the big gym on campus. And we always competed and practiced in the arena, so it was, um, you know, really not um, in the beginning when we were sharing the same facility, you know, I'm not sure he really knew who I was, I mean, obviously, probably after I started wrestling, but... Um and nobody knew at that time Indiana State was gonna have the year it did.
0: Right. Yeah. And yeah.
1: And, and then during the season they, they spent a lot of time over at the Holman Civic Center.
0: The hype at Indiana State when you were a freshman must have been unreal for that basketball team because, you know, Magic Johnson and Michigan State were just a few hours to the north and of course Larry Bird and Magic would have that great rivalry over the years. But um must have been pretty cool.
1: Oh, it was unbelievable. you know arguably that rivalry between Magic Johnson and Larry Bird saved the NBA because they were really faltering at that time and, and I think both of the 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 you know magic and and Larry signed you know to the highest uh, pro f- uh, sport contracts at the time i believe and and uh you know that that I think helped save that rivalry going over the lake that lakers celtics rivalry helped save the nba too i think i mean it was a, a a pretty phenomenal time in fact at the the same time i was there uh um kurt thomas a gymnast was uh all-around olympic uh, world champion in um we had a pretty good offensive lineman, Tunch Elkin, who played a lot of years for the Pittsburgh Steelers and still does the radio for the Pittsburgh Steelers. So it was a pretty good time there, that three or four uh, years at, at Indiana State in our athletic program.
0: Who would imagine that Terre Haute, Indiana has one of the greatest basketball players of all time, one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, at the exact same time at the school. It's, it's hard to fathom.
1: Well, you know, and again, if you go back and look at Kurt Thomas and gymnastics, that's pretty phenomenal, too. You know, he was, uh, you know, I bet you he's probably one of the top 20 gymnasts in for the U.S. ever. But uh, yeah, it was a pretty good, uh, pretty good run at that that particular time.
0: Man, I guess. And, you know, I got to know, Bruce, when did it when did your mindset switch or when did it click for you where you said, I'm going to be the the absolute best I can. I mean, I know you had some great battles with Lou Bannock in college um, at the Midlands. And then in, in some of the NCAA finals. Like when did it, when did just like this fire go off inside of you? Was it before college or was it when you got to Indiana state?
1: Well, I think when I got to Indiana state, my dad sort of challenged me to go out and do my best. And, and I look at uh, my high school and, and I worked hard. I, I don't want to say I didn't work hard, but I, in a lot of areas I really didn't know how to push myself and do my best. And I really didn't um know how to focus and goal set and, and so forth. I had good high school coaching, but I, I wouldn't say it was great high school coaching. I really didn't know what it, it what it took to be your best as a wrestler or or as a student, by the way. You know, it was a little bit of, of that Kid academically that did enough to get by, and then in college, I mean, I, I just think you know, my dad challenged me, mom challenged me to go out and do your best, and um, you know, my my uh, college coach Fran McCann and, and Willie Williams and, and uh, Jim Tannehill, those those guys instilled in me that you know the the. the how to do your best, the work ethic, the doing the extra, the, you know, it's just not going to practice from three thirty to to six o'clock. It's, you know, the eating, right. It's the sleeping, right. It's the, um, you know, the extra workouts and so forth. And I, I think all that combined, um, you know, I, I started to learn how to work hard. I started to learn how to focus and set goals. So, uh, you know, and, and about, 81. Uh, in between the the 81, you know, spring and fall, I had won the World University Games championships. Um, and that that was in Romania, and I think that's where I really kind of felt I had a shot at maybe being okay internationally. I tried out for the 80 Olympic team, but it was a boycott and. You know, I, I got, there were half of the good athletes, not half, a handful of the good athletes never really showed up. Um, so I was alternate to the 80 Olympic team. Uh, and I lost a guy named Greg Wojcikowski in in the final trials, uh, 6-3 and 8-4. Uh, I don't know if I, you know, I could have never beat him that year. He was He was pretty good. But, you know, guys like Jimmy Jackson and some of the other, you know, better heavyweights at the time. Um, although Wojciechowski beat a lot of them But, uh, you know, I don't know if I would have beaten them As a uh, sophomore um, in college Or, or junior in college So, um, you know, that's probably 81 Is where I finally realized uh, You know, I might have a shot of doing something okay In the uh, international wrestling
0: So that's when it started to click a little bit for you um, mm-hmm. And then, I know you had some epic battles with Lou Bannock in 82. You ended up winning it. Lou got third, and then in 80, you guys wrestled in the finals, and you guys had wrestled previously in the Midlands that year. What do you remember about those battles with you and Lou Bannock from Iowa?
1: Well, in 81, um, I, I beat him, I, I guess it would be in the 80. trying to think of the right time. I, I beat him in the 80 Midlands, and then he beat me in the 81 national finals. And then, uh, in 82, we actually didn't wrestle. Uh, he got beat before, uh, the, the, the finals. So, um, I wrestled, uh, Steve Williams in the finals, but, um, you yeah, know, he was a great wrestler, a great guy. Um, you know, obviously Iowa trained at the time. So he was, he was a grinder and, um, you know, I was ahead, uh, in, you know, my junior year and I, I did a bad stand up. He threw a cradle on me and pinned me, um, you know, but it was a, it was a pretty hard fought battle. I mean, he's, uh, I think at that point, you know, he was maybe a little better trained than I was with some workout partners and stuff, you know, better workout partners. But, uh, yeah, it was, was which would say, there were some great battles back then.
0: No question. I've watched a couple of them and, Yeah, you think, I mean, he was working out with Mark Johnson, Chris Campbell. Uh, He had some elite, elite guys.
1: Yeah, his brother, I mean, it was some, you know, two brothers for a while, Steve and Ed.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, at Indiana State, you had some great coaches, and it sounds like they kind of put you on the path where you were going. And then once you graduated, that's when, to me, your career— really took off. I mean, NCA champion, of course, is an um, unbelievable honor, but, Bruce, you won 13 world medals. <laughs> so, um, the NCA ch- uh, championship kind of pales in comparison to what you did internationally. So, after you graduated, did you always know you were going to try and make the Olympics?
1: Well, yeah, that was my goal. A- after, okay. again, probably after that World University Game Championships in 81, and I spent a lot of time with Dave Schultz, and, you know, he kind of convinced me that, you know, Bruce, don't go back to, you know, uh, North Jersey or Western or Eastern Pennsylvania and go teach. He said, you know, you need to go, uh, you know, go somewhere, train, you know, try to be an Olympian. And, you know, it, it started to gel in, in 81. And, um, you know, after I won my championships and I was able to get a graduate assistant down at Oklahoma State University and be a graduate assistant coach and teach in our industrial education department for two years. And, um, you know, it was, a, you know, it it was, if you look and, and uh, you know, I won the Tbilisi in, in 84, I uh, 83, I was third in the world championships. You know, as you said in, in eighty two, Solomon
0: Hasamikov
1: you know, picked me up an airplane, spun me. Um <laughs> for those listeners, he really looked like Curly in the Three Stooges, by the way. Um
0: So this guy, this Soviet was a four so and that's that's a kind of a good segue, is you had some battles with the Soviets, but uh four time world champ, you wrestled him in, in right. the early eighties. I mean, you told right. me earlier that was like the first the first guy you wrestled where it was I you mean, know, this guy's At a little bit of a higher level at this point but maybe if you got him later in your career that wouldn't have been the case
1: right he he was he was he was good and um you know and and uh Tbilisi before the Olympics in 84, and I, I, most of the listeners probably know that in 84, the, the Soviet Union and the so, you know, Eastern European bloc countries boycotted the Olympics, but the Tbilisi tournament, which at the time was, you know, all the Russians and, and most of the better people throughout the world went to the tournament, and I, I won um, in, in 84. I beat most, if not all, the other Russians, but as a side note, Salman Hasaminkov did not wrestle in the ah. Tbilisi in 84 when I won it. Um, now they did say, you know, they were thinking cause he was, you know, when in 82, when he won and I, I'm not sure. I think he won in 83 too. He was, um, okay, yeah, yeah. you know, he, uh, you know, the rumors was he was starting to wear and get old. And some of the other Russians were competing pretty well against him. That's why he didn't go in the Tbilisi tournament. You know, they had already picked him to be the Olympian in 84. He didn't need to go to the Tbilisi tournament or anything, but, uh, yeah. So, so when I was training at, at Oklahoma state, my goal was to win the Olympics. And, you know, I was fortunate to do that, but the, the Eastern European countries weren't there. So I just, I wanted to continue, continue on wrestle and try to win that world championships in the Olympics.
0: Yeah, I, I was going to ask you, even though you won in '84, which you know Japan was still there. I mean, Japan's obviously much tougher at the lighter weight, so maybe not as relevant for you. But most of the the guys who you think would earn medals were not there. I mean, you had to obviously you knew that at the time. Did it diminish it at all for you, or did it? Did you say, "Shoot, I'm still an Olympic champ. Who cares?" Well,
1: I think you know it. it the answer is yes and no. Um, it, when you wrestle or you compete when you, um, in, in any sport, in any game, you're, you are there and you compete against whoever is there that tournament, that day, that weekend, that season, uh, you, you know, in professional football, um, you know, I'm a Steelers fan and, and Ben Roethlisberger's out. So at the world champion, at the, at the Super Bowl, they're not going to say, well, you know, the the Pittsburgh Steelers didn't have their great quarterback. That's why somebody, um, you know, somebody else won it. I mean, it, it, you, you compete with whoever's there on that weekend. So, so that's, that's a, the mindset I think most of us had, but in reality, when, when three or four of the best people in the, world at each weight don't show up it it is you know you've you've almost got to put a bit of an asterisk by it and and just like in 80 when the soviets won you got to put a little bit of an asterisk by it when japan and u.s and some of the other you know countries weren't there when we boycotted so um you know that the it I would say it probably motivated me a bit more to win the Olympics with all the countries there because although I felt because of the Tbilisi and the later world championship I won in, in 86, I felt I was more than capable of winning the Olympics um, it, You know, with all the countries there in 84. But the reality is that everybody would second-guess that for, forever in discussions. So winning in 92 sort of, you know, I, I don't want to say validated it, but, um, you know, with, with all the countries there. In fact, some countries that wouldn't have been there because at that time things were breaking up. So the you still had the really, really good Russian unified states, Soviet Union, Type of countries in, in training system, but some of them at that point were starting to, you know, uh, splinter off into some other countries.
0: That's such a great point because as dominant as the Soviet Union was from like 64 to call it 91, I mean, they won every world championship and their you know their wrestlers won a, a ton of world championships as well. But as you well know, there were probably two to three guys to each weight class from... Dagestan or Ossetia that could have been there, but just got beat out because it was so tough. So in 92 and onward, a lot of people say it got tougher because now, rather than wrestling one Russian, you had to wrestle the Georgian, you had to wrestle the Bulgarian, you had to wrestle the Russian. Um, So like all of these great guys that formerly would have been under the Soviet Union are now also in that bracket, making it that much tougher. Right.
1: And I would argue from that 92 to 96 period, they walk all came through the soviet system and the 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 system that made the soviet union so great now there there's a lot of different countries and Dagestan probably is is the area of the world that produces maybe some of the greatest wrestlers and and but that the the, the Soviet system is sort of no longer in place. I mean, you know, Ukraine, uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, um, Georgia. I'm trying to think of some of the other. Um, Azerbaijan. Be- Belarus, Azerbaijan. I mean, they all have their own systems now as opposed to coming through the the, quote, great Soviet system. So, right. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of great wrestlers out there now and as were they in in uh you know back in in the you know 90 through to through 96 but the the soviet influence i don't think is there anymore
0: that makes sense it's i mean especially since it's been broken up that long but it does seem like right. a lot of the good wrestlers come from that Chechnya region and oh um, yeah Mm -hmm. in southwest russia i guess if you want to call it russia they would they would say otherwise but um right did you ever imagine in 1984 that you would wrestle in three more olympics
1: no i took it one year for in fact you know dave schultz and i would joke oh this is the last one you know we're not (laughs) and then you know six weeks after the olympics yeah we're going for the next one i mean it was just uh you know he retired up part of time there you can obviously tell by my conversation dave and i had a pretty close relationship and he was very um uh instrumental in my success uh over the years but uh you know it, it uh, how
0: so if you don't mind me asking you, like what you never what well did you i mean we
1: we those? roommate together he kind of w- would uh I would joke, say we we'd give each other therapy when we had problems, you know, and we'd talk <laughs> to each other about a lot of different things and you know, whine and complain. We were both uh, you know, married I think the same year. Um, we uh you know, our wives got along We, you know, as families we, we kind of uh you know, there was a lot of times where he and I were roommates and, and you know, our our wives would hang out together on different trips and so forth it was a pretty good situation I think for both of us uh, especially as we got older and the rest of the team got younger
0: (laughs) yeah I mean I I didn't even make that can I mean obviously he was on all those teams but you know that's one of the things you always look forward to getting out of these interviews is something that you can't pick up reading the stats or the interviews I never knew that you guys were that close
1: well when you you uh it, it, to put things in perspective, and I don't know the exact year when when uh, Les Gutches made the '96 Olympic team, I believe it was. Um, I believe it was '96. Was it not? Yeah. Um, in Spokane, he came up to me and said, "You know, when you you were my idol or something when you were growing up, when I was growing up, you know, when I was like eight years old, you won your first Olympics, and so that's the You got to realize that." You know, I was 36 wrestling when some of the guys in the team were 21, 22, 23. So the, the 35, I should say. So there was a significant age difference. I think Dave was actually six months or a year older than I was. So, the, you know, when we were in those, some of those teams in the 90s, we were, you know, 10 plus years older than the other guys.
0: Right. Hard to uh I mean it's kind of like you were the Tom Brady of wrestling. I mean, way but you and Dave both way before that even uh that was even a thing, you know? I mean, 36 is super old to be wrestling in the Olympics.
1: When uh well, uh Chris Campbell, I mean, he's a great wrestler, awesome guy. Uh I think he medaled when he was 39. I believe he really worked hard. He came back, but he sat out for a while. And so his body didn't maybe have the wear of doing, you know, uh, 15 world Olympic championships in a row. But, um, you know, he was, he was 39. I still think he's our oldest, but, uh, in 96, when I medaled, I was 35 years old. So wow. that's, that's pretty old. Cause when I won in 92, uh, Ryan, you have to realize people at that time thought I was really old and I was, you know, 31, almost turning 32. So, I mean, yeah, we, if you look at the history, not many people before Dave Schultz and I wrestled past about 30 or, or, you know, 30, 31.
0: And what was the financial situation like back in those days? Because now you see a lot of wrestlers saying, hey, I don't have to go to the UFC. To make money because the RTCs, you know, they're paying some. Not, no one's getting rich. Let's be clear, but they're paying livable wages. What was it like training for the Olympics in the '80s and '90s in terms of like the financial situation?
1: Well, it put it in perspective. And training for the '84 Olympics, if somebody wanted to donate money to me to train, they had to donate it to USA Wrestling. And I could only get money if I sent receipts to USA Wrestling to, you know, for uh, if if I needed to buy a training piece or if I, you know, a, an exercise bike or, or whatever, I had to go out. We got almost no support from the Olympic Committee then. When Art Martori started to get involved in... Um, Uh, uh, you know, I always wrestled for the New York athletic club and there was the athletes in action and there was the Hawkeye club and the Badger club. There were some other clubs out there when they started to grow. And then there, there, there was, you know, small monthly stipends, nothing that could, could sustain somebody. Then John DuPont came in, who was Mm -hmm. probably a benefit of wrestling the first couple of years and then started to really, um, you know I think mental illness or or whatever um sure. Sure. caused him to do what he did uh started to to manifest and and perpetuate but uh when he started then you know there was a little bit more monthly stipends and that was probably in that you know bit ninety ish area going into ninety two um but there really wasn't much prize money or or any kind, and I mean, like what I mean by prize money. I think in in the, in, and I have to check the records. I think if you won a gold medal in in eighty and ninety six, I think it was twenty five thousand, and um, silver was maybe fifteen, and a bronze was five. I, I don't remember that, but there was. That's the only year I remember there being much financial resources i mean they had some one-off things in pittsburgh where they had the super championships where if you you won you could make two two or three thousand dollars and at that time that was pretty good by the way if you know if you're a assistant wrestling coach or a wrestling coach at, at edinburgh university like i was because you if you i was uh i was assistant wrestling coach full-time from uh and edinburgh from 84 to to uh, 90 and then head coach from 90 to 97 so most of my career competing I was also a head coach at the college and we had a couple of top 10 or at least one top 10 finish maybe two in that time frame so um, you know it, it was a different uh, it, it was a different time financially um, you know I kind of joke John Smith won won uh six medals and you know I think he would have gotten the two hundred and fifty thousand for the first medal, gold medal, and then um uh I'm not sure how it went, but if you had just two hundred and fifty thousand up times six, that's a million and a half, but there was some multipliers in there for back to back. So you know, that that would be a total game changer. You know, if oh, yeah. even I had five medals, that'd be a million, you know, and a quarter, not counting the the you know, other other eight medals I had. So totally different time frame and, you know, as president of USA Wrestling Ryan, I can tell you we're we're trying to to provide better and better for our athletes, uh, you know, safer environments for them you know you you know with the safe sport and in the uh better quality of coaching and more education uh but we're also trying to provide for our athletes uh you know elite athletes uh so they can make better than what you would you know using your word better than a livable wage we, right. we want them to to you know, be able to sustain their success as long as they want to and not worry, well, I got to get on with life because, you know, making, you know, 25, 30, $40,000 a year, being a world champion, that's that's kind of ancient history. I mean, we didn't make that back when I was wrestling, but I, you know, now again, you know, I think it's $250,000 if you win an Olympic gold medal. So there's some incentive right there.
0: I didn't realize it was that much. That's that's incredible.
1: I, I think it is. I mean, you, you'd have to do the research, sure. but it's a decent amount of money, yes.
0: Wow. And yeah, I mean, you think about a lot of the, I think the elite wrestlers have stayed in wrestling, but you know, some of those mid, not mid-tier, I'm talking like number three, four, five in the ladder, maybe they've gone on to UFC a little bit early just because of the financial rewards and you know, you look at the UFC champs. I think eight of the ten or eight of the nine are wrestlers. So obviously, it works, and they're making good money. But that's a whole other level of damage they're taking in terms of the head trauma and that right. Kind of thing. I mean so
1: it, I it's, it. It's it it's going to be interesting to see um, how and and I'm sure that the 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 you know UFC or or MMA community is going to you know keep a close eye on the concussion and the durability and and what happens to these uh, fighters, you know, when they're 50, 60, 70 years old Um, you know, some of the, the, you know, groundbreaking people. And I, I would say Randy Couture, who was a great amateur wrestler and, and just a great guy gives back to the sport. You know, they didn't get into the UFC or the MMA till later on in life. But, you know, so I don't think they're as good as a, an example as, you know, some of these kids that are, are, you know, in, in college or in high school, starting that sport in, in, You know, what, what's the, what, what's that going to look like when a kid who started at 21, 22, what, what are they going to look at? You know, if they have a career into their thirties or or later, you know, early forties, some of those guys go to like, let's say, you know, 40 and then what are their bodies and minds going to be at 50 or 60 years old? I mean, that's, that's going to be the true study and we won't know that for another 10 or more years.
0: Right. Yeah. There's just not enough body evidence for that. Now, before we, before we go back to, to, uh, your career, I got to ask real quick, how close are we, if at all, to getting 10 weight classes back at the Olympics, not for 2020, but for uh, subsequent Olympics?
1: Well, I, I think that's going to be a hard thing to call. I, it, there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of, uh, things that, that, that happen within the Olympic committee uh, both internationally and our national federation, international federation, which is, you know, UWW and um, it, it'd be almost impossible to predict. I know that's what
0: sure.
1: most people want uh, in the sport of wrestling, but I think it comes down to finances, um, adding all the sports and, and trying to be totally equitable uh, in the, the financial burden of hosting a Olympics on a host site is, is astronomical. Well, you know, if, if you have four more weights times, you know, whatever the number of competitors, if it stays at 16 or 10, it, it just continues the add to the amount of, of, you know, issues at the Olympics. And I think that's why the UWW has broken off. Although I, I, I think there's some advantages and some disadvantages to having 10 weight classes during the world championships. And then the six Olympic weight classes, but, um, you know, it, it, it's rough in that transition year because the U S is going to have some dilemmas. We have some awesome wrestlers. We have probably 10 really good wrestlers on the team last year, and we only have six spots in, in Tokyo. So I think when you look at that, Ryan, um, it would be almost impossible to predict the likelihood of that. If I was a betting man, I would probably say wrestling would do that in a heartbeat. I don't know that the International Olympic Committee, um, if that will ever fly. I think it just there's there's just some financial dynamics uh, against that um, that that I don't know that are overcomeable.
0: Yeah, I I didn't really think about the financial impact but then i as you were saying that i i'm thinking all right well if they cut the two-thirds and just make it a true third maybe that's less of the medals or less of the people but i mean obviously it's way above my pay grade and and you would know the the politics and intricacies of that um yeah it it is just unfortunate to think about at our upper weights how many guys are not going to be going to the olympics who uh who are world level athletes
1: Right. I mean, we have. When you look at our our team we put out in Paris, and our team we we had in um uh well, I'll say Paris, Budapest, and Kazakhstan. I mean, it, 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 almost every one of those folk. We had ten great wrestlers, you know. And and it, it, you, you look, there's only going to be six in Tokyo. So it's simple math. We're going to leave, you know four people that were on a world championship team home. And then that's not saying some of our weight classes in the United States, we're two and three and four deep, uh, that uh, people that could medal. So it it's going to be some interesting trials starting here in, in, uh, December down in Fort Worth and then a couple of different trial tournaments. And then obviously state college in the beginning of April. I Even mean, there's going to be some great matches. Yeah. Th- this weekend is, um,
0: uh, the, uh, Bill Farrell.
1: Yeah, Bill Farrell in New York. So
0: right. Um, yeah, and that's to qualify for the trials as well. Um, so mm-hmm. be- before we we let you go, I got to spend uh, got to spend maybe ten minutes just talking about your uh, your epic rivalry with David Gobishavili um, How many times? Let's just start here. How many times did you guys wrestle?
1: I believe we wrestled approximately sixteen times.
0: Oh my God! Okay, so this this gentleman uh, from the Soviet Union, two time world champ, Olympic champ in '88, and you guys wrestled in the in the '88 Olympic finals, and then in the '92 Olympic finals, you won in '92.
1: Um, well, not not in the finals. In '92, in I wrestled him in the pool round. We myself. David Gobert Chevili, and Andre Schroeder and Schroeder had won the world championships and was probably, if you go back, he's a four or five time world medalist. We were all on the same court, uh, same half. <laughs> so I, I wrestled, um, I wrestled those guys to get in the finals against Jeff Toohey, who was a Canadian who was third in the world the year before.
0: Okay. Okay. Gotcha. That is, uh, what a side of the bracket. I mean, that's obviously they weren't seeding it back then. <laughs> so did you first uh, run into this gentleman at the Tbilisi tournament, or when was the first time you remember wrestling? Well, really.
1: I, I believe the first time I wrestled him was in the dual meet in the Soviet Union. Um, I want to say about 85, and then I think he had beaten me there. Um, he had beaten me there. He had beaten me in... A world championships, I forget what one he had beaten me in. Um, with the world championships, it was in uh Tokyo 90. He beat me in 80, o- Olympics in, in 88, world championships in Tokyo, um, in 90 a dual meet and he beat me one other time he's beaten me four times um i believe i've beaten him in a world championships i've beaten him in the olympics i think he was in one of the Tbilisi tournaments and then we wrestled uh about five or six other times um uh in um World Cups and dual meets and you know there was a really epic dual meet and um, uh, the Fiesta Bowl of wrestling was with the Fiesta Bowl I th- I think it was in 88 or 89 I I beat him in th- that uh, and the reason why I remember that so well is uh, we just did a thing for Bobby Douglas at the Hall of Fame honoring him uh, at the uh, Dan Gable Museum and Hall of Fame in Iowa and we were talking about that meet in Arizona when he was down there. That was in Arizona, the Fiesta Bowl of wrestling. And then the day or two later was the Fiesta Bowl uh, football tournament, you know, football bowl game. So I beat him quite a bit, you know, more than he did. Now, he beat me, you know, in an Olympics and the world championships were two, two, you know, uh, premier events. And I believe I beat him in two premier events.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's what I have here, and you know what's interesting is when you wrestle someone like that that many times. I always wonder if that's someone where you were training solely for him, or if you were just kind of training as you were, and if you happen to wrestle him, so be it.
1: Well, it, there was a point of a, a point in my career is that there were really only about three people I would ever really, you know, um, different time. It was usually the Soviet or the Russian, the Iranian, um, and maybe the Turk, depending on what year it was. So, um, it, it, uh, you know, you weren't really training at, at my level or during that time for the the guy from Hungary you know you had to respect him but you weren't doing a lot of film on those guys but you really studied the film on you know, uh Schroeder, the German, the Iranian, the couple of different Iranians. I wrestled the, the couple different Turks, the Russian. um, you know, even the Georgian one a little bit later on, but it wasn't like, and you got to realize some of the times in the world championships back then, there was no qualifying, not like today. So there were literally 30, you know, there might've been 30 people in a weight class, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I wrestled the guy from the Island, the Mauritius and, you know, they were pretty bad. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, at that level, I, I can't even imagine. When, when I say I can't imagine, it's because you beat, you went 17 years without losing to someone from the U.S. So you're talking about, you know, world-class performer at the top level, you know, going against other world-class performers. And, like, when you were going into the Olympics in 92, knowing that you had had some absolute battles with this guy, like you said, you, you beat him, or you won in 86, he beat you in 88, and 90, he won but in 92 going into it knowing you know the morning of that tournament knowing that you have all these guys in your side of the bracket where were you at mentally and did you do any type of visualization to to get yourself ready
1: well yeah i was um you know i did some affirmations and positive thoughts but i didn't focus on on the mental as much as is the physical and i'll say this that um you know, if you look at my history in in '91, I didn't do very well. So I I had a little bit of a something to prove in '92. '91, I I did not uh, medal. That was I think I had eight straight, had a break, and then five more straight. But, um, you know, I it was I was well trained. I was focused. I mean, it was it was definitely a uh, um, you know quality the the tournament I was focusing on the most.
0: Yeah. So you did some of the affirmations though? I mean do you remember what, oh, yeah. what they were back then? Like, oh
1: just positive thought. I mean there there wasn't uh again we didn't we didn't have some of the the uh you know the the scientific training. We didn't have the psychologists, the you know the the Um, sports psychologists helping us near as much back then as they do now. Yeah. It's, you know what I mean? Yeah,
0: totally. Yeah, absolutely. And so it was more so just positive affirmations. And then, I mean, when when we're like five minutes out from a match, were you going through your routine of what you would do? Or are you trying to be as calm and just kind of as loose as possible?
1: Oh, I had a pretty constant routine, Ryan. I mean, I was, I definitely did the same things over and over and, um, you know, just a an on top of it routine. I, I was very, from a couple of days out in my training, from a couple of days out, you know, or, or uh, you know, eating, training, resting, I tried to do, you know, the same thing and, and routine over and over. And I was pretty religious about that. You know, I was, uh, um, in, in the guests, the, the warm up, the drill partners, the, the corner coaches, all those things were very, uh, planned, calculated. I, I don't know if they were, I mean, they worked for me obviously, but you know, in today's, um, much more scientific method, I don't know if, um, they uh, it would hold up and be be good, but again, for me, it was awesome. Yeah, you know, it it was you know I had you know guys like Bill Wick and Greg Strobel in my corner, and you know uh, Bruce Burnett and and uh, you know just just a ton of different coaches, head coaches and stuff, and we put together a good plan for for me, and and it worked, and you know visualization, positive thought was all all part of that game.
0: Man, and, and obviously it worked. 13 world medals, uh, five world championships, two Olympics, and three world uh, – five world-level medals, two Olympic gold medals, and three world gold medals. Just unbelievable, unbelievable stats. And I'll just say, Bruce, it's been an honor to chat with you, and I hope to have you back on because there's a ton of stuff here we didn't even get to. But the last thing I'll say as we sign off is – same question we ask everyone. It seems kind of silly asking you how wrestling changed your life because it was your job and your it's been your life, but maybe what what things do you take away from the sport or what has it taught you that you still take with you to this day in, in, uh, in your career?
1: Well, Ryan, I think wrestling had changed my life because when I look at um, when I was in high school, I wanted to be a, a bus mechanic like my dad was and a mechanic and work with my hands then I, you know, I'll go to college and I'll be a teacher. Uh, and as it turned out because of wrestling, I I was able to, to be a wrestler. I I was, you know, able to coach wrestling at Edinburgh university for about 13 years. I was the athletic director for, for 10 at Edinburgh and, and, um, you know, working in the assistant vice president for advancement at Edinburgh university. And, I think it, it changed my career path, uh, quite frankly, for the better. I mean, I, not that teaching wouldn't have been good, but um, you know, I was able to help uh, young men in wrestling as I would have been able to help young, you know, people in teaching. But uh, you know, and, and I'm at a position now where, as president of USA Wrestling, I can get back to the sport. So it, it really did change my my career path um, significantly. And, and I look at that and, uh, very thankful for it. And, you know, I think wrestling is a great life lesson sport. And I, I think when you, you have to be a team player and have to have good workout partners and have to surround yourself with good people, but it also teaches you when you're on that mat, when it's you against the other person, I think you have to really, um, you have to own up and take responsibilities for your wins and your losses. And I think that, um, you know, wrestling has taught me many life lessons. And as I do clinics and speaking engagements and my work with USA wrestling, hopefully, um, you know, as a volunteer board member with USA wrestling, hopefully you're giving back.
0: And all great things must come to an end. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe Give us a review, give us a rating, and share this with your friends. It would mean the world to us. Thanks for listening to Wrestling Changed My Life.